If you love how Dan Rather unravels amazing true stories, you got to check out Music's Greatest Mysteries. That podcast will really get you thinking. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the thought-provoking podcast with in-depth interviews with music and cultural icons only Dan Rather can deliver. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from classic rock to country and alternative. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview, that makeup, that tongue, and that rock and roll. For 40 years, Gene Simmons has been thrilling fans as the face of the rock band KISS. Even if you hate the band and the music and think it's silly, if you come to our show, you will walk out and say, that's the best show I've ever seen in my life. But there's a lot more to Gene Simmons behind the makeup. From drugs to patriotism to the state of the music industry, he's never afraid to speak his mind. You're basically saying that not just rock and roll, but the music business has been murdered. Is that too strong a word? Oh, it's been murdered, all right. Not by outside forces, foreign powers. We killed rock and roll. Outspoken songwriter, entrepreneur, and rock and roller, Gene Simmons. Caught up with Kiss as they rehearsed. And readied for the Fashion Rocks concert in New York City earlier this month. At six foot two, Gene Simmons already cuts an imposing figure, but add the seven-inch Dragon Skull platform boots, the Silver Destroyer armor, and the iconic makeup, and he's downright menacing. Underneath this whole getup is a very wealthy 65-year-old artist and entrepreneur who is wildly popular for what has become generations of followers. Simmons created his stage persona, The Demon, when he started KISS with lead singer and guitarist Paul Stanley in the early 1970s. Their concerts have always been about more than just the music. They are an entertainment spectacle. Pyrotechnics shower the stage. Band members fly through the air. And Simmons doesn't just play bass. He spews blood and breathes fire. But Simmons realized early on, Kiss could be more than a band. 
it could be a brand. KISS manages more than 3,000 licensed products. Sure, there are t-shirts, posters, and headphones, but how about KISS seat covers and KISS Hello Kitties? And for the most diehard fans, the KISS casket. Simmons is as much a businessman as a rock and roller. He's the recipient of a Lifetime Achievement Award from Forbes magazine. And his new book, Me, Inc., due out later this fall, shares lessons he's learned in his roles as both a multi-platinum selling recording artist and an entrepreneur whose portfolio includes everything from a record company to a restaurant chain to horse racing. And this has been a big year for KISS. They're celebrating 40 years in the business and were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. See, them paparazzi. That's your official. I met up with Gene Simmons not far from where he grew up in New York City. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to go up and down these streets and take the posters of the band and post them um, the, you know, it was free advertising because we were playing these areas, you know? Everybody agrees that, you know, this was an incredibly successful band. It is an incredibly successful band. But it doesn't have a long list of top ten individual hits. Question, how are you so successful without all the chart-topping singles? We decided not to play the game. The game of pop groups was to try to figure out those saccharine sweet melodies and choruses that had to do with love and heartbreak and so on, so that mom and dad listening to the radio during the daytime would find appealing. The philosophy was to put together an entire statement, a body of work, if you will, as opposed to one song, because there are a lot of bands Wang Chung, that was a band that had two number one hits. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. You can't tell me who's in the band. The band came and went. Do you consider yourself more a musician or more an entertainer, or can you make that difference? I don't think it matters. You know, this uh, self-aggrandizement where artists, artistes perhaps, insist on being taken seriously and I have inspiration and stuff like that. I, I consider it, I consider what I do in all areas, whether it's in restaurant chains or football or rock bands, as the working man's ethic. And I like the novelist who gets up every day and from 9 a.m. until 10 p.m. or whatever that time is, sits in front of his then typewriter and whether he feels the inspiration or not, puts in the time. It's time for work. Inspiration, as far as I'm concerned, is highly overrated. Put in the time. And that's what I do. I have, a, I have a working man's ethic. I get up at the crack of dawn, go up all day, do all sorts of things until I'm dog tired. So you're a preacher of the gospel. Perspiration will beat even inspiration. Success is 1%. Inspiration and 99% perspiration. The harder I work, the luckier I get. There's just no substitute. Well, no one would deny that you've worked hard. Let's tick off the things that you have been involved with and are involved with as an entrepreneur. 
I mean, there is the band, there's KISS. I don't think people understand just how big it is. We have a forthcoming TV series with Warner Brothers that's scripted. We have a forthcoming uh, motion picture that's fully funded, in fact, by the motion picture company I'm a partner in. We have a cartoon show that's funded called Kiss Girls. We have the Kiss Las Vegas golf course that's fully active right across from the Hard Rock. Limo services, I mean, 5,000 licensed products. It has grown. It has gone where no band had gone before. You've seen a lot of changes. Let's talk about what's changed in the entertainment industry. It's sad and even pathetic that in this new age of technology, the laws of the land haven't kept up with technology. So there's not going to be another Beatles. There's not going to be another Hendrix or Kiss or anybody else because there's no structure. There is no record industry. There's chaos. So what you do is you work hard at doing what you do, and I work hard at what I do, and I want to get paid. I already put in more than 10,000 hours. There's that 10,000 hour principle that if you spend enough time, you get good at something. It's a good idea. But the next 15-year-old kid that plugs into his Marshall amplifier or has the talent is not going to be able to earn a living because there isn't a record company to pay advances, non-recoupable, plus royalties, plus put up posters all over, plus tour support. It's chaos out there because the freckle-faced kid next door believes he's entitled. You have enough money. Why do you care? I want to take your creation, and I just want to make as many copies as I want without paying you for it. And they get it for free. Get Everything the, for free. Get on the internet, hit it up, you get it for free. And I know people are up, upset when I say things. All information to all people. You would understand what that meant if you wrote a book and spent a year writing it and nobody paid you for it. They all just made copies and everybody got one. Then you'd understand, hey, it's my book. Yeah, but you have enough money. Don't worry about that. I take your point. But to those who would say, listen, if rock and roll is dead, do you think rock and roll is dead? It is the nail has finally been put into the coffin, yes. And that's because I'll play a, a short game with you. From 1958, for 25 or 30 years after that, let's give it 30 years. 1958 for 30 years makes it 1988, right. okay? From then until 1988, oh, name 100 bands, even hundreds of bands that have become iconic. Well, let's see, Elvis Presley, The Beatles, Rolling Stones, you can on and on. Oh, this is long. Motown, The Supremes, and in blues, and country and western, it's just amazing. From 1988, that includes, by the way, U2 and Madonna and Michael Jackson and all that pop stuff. From 1988 until today, give me 10 or one iconic superstar that's gonna stand the test of time. Nirvana because they recorded two records. Okay, so maybe I'll give you Nirvana. So that's one. Can't think of another. How about that? But I was unprepared for this test. But nobody is because they'll go, oh, one of the pop girls, they're terrific. I love Britney Spears and Rihanna. They're all terrific. Stand the test of time? I say no. Iconic? Not a chance. On, the, on par with Beatles, Elvis, Motown, all that stuff? And that's because there used to be a process, and structure is everything. If there's a structure, it's logic, 
and then it's competition, just like Mother Nature. And who decides who reaches the top? The people. Of the people, for the people, by the people. So when they were buying records, buying albums, the people the voted with their decided. dollar. That's right. But as I understand it, you're basically saying that not just rock and roll, but the music business and in many ways the entertainment business has been murdered. Is that too strong a word? Oh, it's been murdered, all right. Not by, not by outside forces, foreign powers. We killed rock and roll. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Gene Simmons. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Gene Simmons. You've dealt in the world of rock and roll and entertainment, but you don't have a reputation of having ever been deep into drink. I've never been willingly drunk or high or smoked deep cigarettes in my life. Nah. How did you avoid that when so many others didn't? Well, honestly, um, I just, if I could verbalize it, I just couldn't imagine breaking my mother's heart. and. In my opinion, and I have to say that so that people don't get upset again, you don't understand, it's a disease. Oh, please, leave me alone. All the drinking and the drugs and everything else is a selfish idea to my way of thinking because it hurts the mother who gave you birth, the people who love you, and it winds up being a selfish, arrogant act. And then, of course, when everybody else doesn't understand, you play the victim card. You know, I'm, I'm unhappy and... You're not giving me enough money to live off in the apartment. I just want to get high. And I have no patience for that. And you're right. I would support you in the sweeping generalization. Predominantly, the rap world, the rock world, the entertainment world is filled with drug addicts and alcoholics. I stand by every word I just said. I see them every day. And it is a culture of ruin. It just doesn't work. You haven't been into drink. Having been into drugs, fair to say that you've had a weakness for women? Oh, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm the male of the species, and, you know, I went from, from famine to feast. When I was very young, 12, 13, 14, I didn't do so well with girls. And, you know, I desperately wanted their companionship. I didn't know if I wanted a girlfriend or if it was just sex or anything. I just was attracted. And then... I joined a band, and it was like Tinkerbell just put the dust all over me, and all of a sudden, I mean, that happened a long time ago, you could wake up next to somebody whose name you never bothered to learn. Would you agree that's narcissistic? And in its way is, if not a disease, a malady that could be equated with drink, drugs, some of the others. It's an interesting either prognosis or thought, and maybe I'm not the one to determine that. 
But I will tell you that while the people around me were getting high in drugs, I was, I was uh, guilty as charged of going after the pleasures of the flesh, absolutely. Well, bluntly put, and some would be uncomfortable with this language. Oh, I'm not comfortable with any Instead language. of getting high or getting drunk, you were getting late. Quite a bit of it. Is that the reason you said later in life that, quote, fame creates monsters? Were you one? Perhaps. I don't think it was meant to grab power and to be unkind to people. It was self-satiation. I just couldn't believe that it was from famine to feast and I could have anything I wanted. This sort of, I mean, I love cake and I can imagine this wonder world where I'm thrown into a bakery, you can eat anything you want and you'll never gain a, a pound. I'm going, oh my God, I'm gonna gorge myself. And that's what I did for decades, thousands. And I neither say that in humor or, or, or with arrogance or bravado, just I'd never had it. And I, maybe it's fair to say somebody else should figure out whether it's a sex addiction or not, but I certainly went into it head, hands, and feet. You've been in relationships with some from famous women. You've dated some of the biggest superstars of all time. Anything you can share with us about Cher? Oh, she's a wonderful lady, uh, loving mother, caring. She's wonderful. I treasure the time we had together, and she's still a friend. I didn't understand Hollywood. I didn't understand uh, anything about Los Angeles. I was thrust into the deep end of the pool. Coming from New York, you didn't see anybody. You didn't know anybody. It was just in a band, and you go from city to city. And, and then when I met Cher, and, you know, we just palled around and got along and then just decided to live together, uh, anybody would come up, Dolly Parton or, you know, the Charlie's Angels or one second it's this one, and you live in Malibu and it was like some bizarre world where only famous people lived. And then one day she got up and said, let's go jog. And I said, jog? What's jog? I'd never heard of the word in New York. You didn't run anywhere unless somebody was chasing you. Now we're going to run on the beach. Where to? Why? Where did, I didn't understand. So I put on my silk purple shirt and my snakeskin boots, and I didn't know where we were going. And she was laughing, and I'm trying to, you know, run in the beat. And then Neil Diamond came one way, and then Barbara Streisand came the other. And I said, I've landed on Mars. I have no idea what I'm doing here. I clearly don't belong. She was a great, great lady. I interviewed Diana Ross not long ago. And it comes to mind that you also had a relationship with her. I did. Wonderful mother, loved her kids, worked her way up from being a 16-year-old girl, you know, in the ghetto, and uh, she's a self-made woman. Hey, just great. You know, in the dictionary, there's the word lady. There should be a photo of uh, Diana right there. Where's my groom? Where's my man? Which way are we going? Wow! But for the past three decades, only one woman has remained constant in Jean's life, former Playboy cover girl Shannon Tweed. The couple lives in Beverly Hills, where they raised their two children, Nick and Sophie.
and for seven years invited cameras into their home to give a behind-the-scenes glimpse at their family life in the TV show Gene Simmons Family Jewels. You cancel all your meetings. You've got 30 minutes. Your stuff is packed. Anything you're going to need this weekend is in this bag. No, seriously. You better get going. We treated all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I was the ugly part of it. And ironically enough, you know, the thing, reality shows break families apart because it's too real. Ironically enough, in our case, I saw the goodness of our family and the good parts of me, but I also saw scabs and the wounds and all of myself because it's tough to look at yourself and say, oh my God, I, I really am causing pain to my family. And at the end of the day, at the end of my life, because we're all gonna take a turn at that, who do I want around me? Some stripper or somebody that could care less about me or do I want my family, my children, Shannon, the, the woman I love, you know, the arrogance of youth and the folly of youth, in my case, I don't want to speak specifically, I want to stand up to my responsibility. I'm an only child, and all my life I thought nobody should be able to ask me, where are you going? Where am I going? Who wants to know? So my errant ways, as they say, has been a, a life of arrogance and selfishness. and. You know, the only way, the only way to cure any of that is to be completely upfront about it and to stand guilty as charged of being who I am. In fact, I had an album that I named, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, Asshole. May I? Yes. This Asshole. is cable television. You know. There you go. I named it that because in, in, it was one of the song titles, but in a very real way, uh, I was one. I'd like to think I'm no longer. And in Gene Simmons' Family Jewels, people get to view this bumpy ride. Oh yeah, all of it. You, you see the infidelities, you see Shannon being hurt, you see her wanting not to stay together, and arrogantly, I stayed together with Shannon. How about that? Here's the selfishness part. She stayed together with me for 29 years, faithfully, with all the trials and tribulations, without demanding anything. And finally, when the kids were grown up, there was a point in time where either we were gonna break up or I was gonna stand up and be a man. So we've been together 31 years, but married only two. But for so long, you met her, you fell in love with her, lived with her, but for so long you continued to I draw a deep breath to use the word cheat. Oh, more than that. It was gluttony to the excess. I never wanted children. I said to her, do you want to live together? Want to hang out? Stuff? I'm not going to marry you. I put it down in writing. We're not going to get married. I don't want children. I don't ever want to have children. Because I didn't want another child to feel what I felt like when a father walked out. I thought I was going to do it. Well, guess what? Nick is 25 years old, six foot eight. Sophie is going to rule the planet. She's writing books and acting, and she's the queen of the household. She's 22. In fact, we're having dinner right after this interview, I'm proud to say. And I did, I, I did not become my father. I'm a good father. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Gene Simmons.
Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Gene Simmons. The American dream is alive and well in Gene Simmons. An immigrant to the United States at age eight, Simmons' humble beginnings in Israel have long shaped his outlook on life, America, and helping others. When I was a little boy in Israel, we had nothing. There was a rocket hole in the one bedroom that my mother and I shared, and my father on the weekends would go off to war and hitch a ride to the front lines, which could have been the next city over, because you're surrounded by countries that hate you and want you gone. At the end of the day, the room went pitch black. There was no electricity. We had a, an outhouse. I'd never seen toilet paper or Kleenex. Never heard of it, never saw it. Didn't start brushing my teeth until I was 11 years old. Never heard of a toothpaste or toothbrush. And one day, a cardboard box came through the mail. And my mother opened it up, and there was a can of peaches, which I'd never seen before. I'd never seen food inside of a metal container. And there was a ripped sweater that was too big for me. But I put that on like it was, you know, a kingly rope. I wore that sweater every day proudly, even with the, I remember the tear here. I didn't, I never saw anything so beautiful. And my mother took a rock and broke open the can of peaches. It was a big one. And she let me have, you know, the nectar. The... And to this day, I, I remember that sweet, I'd never tasted anything so sweet. And what that care package did for me, all of a sudden, I had the sense that the world cared, because I didn't know who it came from. All of a sudden, the world was a better place. All of a sudden, we were not alone. I'm, uh, I'm just trying to control myself so I don't start, you know. So I promised myself that later on, if I ever did well in life, I'd make sure that other little boys and girls around the world <clears throat> would feel that hope, that thing. So I, uh, I personally support 1,400 children throughout Africa not through organizations. I've got some people who bring fresh food. We clothe them, we educate them, but you can eat as much as you want as long as you come to school. Does that come in any way? You started first going to a religious school. Did you seriously consider becoming a rabbi? I did. My mother put me into what we call yeshiva, which is basically a serious theological seminary. And my mother thought that I should be a rabbi. You've done so much. You've seen so much. You've had a lust for life, which you've fulfilled in so many ways. Are you still a religious person? You know, I think that's a very uh, good question. I think all of us grapple with that issue. I'd like to think that all the injustices of the world, babies born with AIDS and when they're innocent. And there are some very bad people that have very good lives. You'd like to think, and I'm not just pointing to the Holocaust of World War II and Jews, but the Armenians at the turn of the 20th century, a million of them were slaughtered. And you just genocide across the board, across the African continent, and so on. 
you'd like to think that there's some justice somewhere. And I don't want to hear a religious person say God works in mysterious ways. That's the coward's way out. So I want to believe that there's a greater humane, if lack of a better word, God up there that does watch over us if we're all God's children. On the other side, I'm grappling every day with the idea and the notion, if these were my children, I wouldn't let them be tortured. And I understand. Listen, I studied Christianity and Islam and Judaism. I know that Jesus was born uh, Sua ben Yosef. His father was Joseph, and then he became a rabbi. I mean, I know all this stuff. But I have some real issues, so I will say the following. And I'll try to be as respectful as possible. My people wrote the book, after all. If God appeared like this, at, the, at this moment, call God what you will. OK, everybody on your knees, here I am, and God said, just hold your horses. I know you're the eternal, you want. Sit down. I have a lot of questions. You gave me the mind to think of these questions in the first place. I am your creation. So if you've given me the mind, I have questions. How dare you allow children to suffer? How dare you allow genocide? And it's our fault. OK, sometimes you come in and perform miracles, and other times you let us kill our ourselves. The difference between good and bad seems to be a gray issue. The bad sometimes do better than the good. I have a lot of questions. So what's the best thing that's happened to you in your life? Well, the best thing that ever happened to me was coming to America. I mean that honestly, uh, unapologetically. Once I landed in America with my mother, I, it was like through, you know, th through the rabbit hole, Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. I never saw anything so big. The people were big. The cars were big. The sandwiches were enormous. People had refrigerators full of their own food. You didn't have to go to a store to pour a can of soda. I remember as an eight and a half, nine-year-old boy going to the first supermarket across from my Aunt Magda's house, and I walk in. And it's like city streets with people going down one street and up the other and stuff, carrying tons of food. And the food was stacked up higher than, uh, than the people were taught. I just couldn't fathom it. It was just, you know, the America, the land of plenty. Has this abundance, does this abundance, made us soft? Yes, I believe the work ethic has been compromised. I believe we're living in the age of entitlement. I believe that, uh, you know, for, for as an example, our kids, Nick and Sophie, never had an allowance. It's the wrong training. When you're 18 or 19 or 20 and you enter the workforce, your hand is still out there going, where's the money that I get every week for doing nothing? And so uh, I think what's missing in America is a reminder of what made America great. America was created by the outcasts of all the countries in the world. Yes, give me your tired and your poor, your huddled masses, you bet. And the underclass created the wonder that is America that is still, and don't kid yourself, uh, admired and respected around the world. Guardedly, they're jealous. I don't remember the last boatload of people who got up from you know, the beach and said, thank God I've made it to the shores of France. It just doesn't work. It's America. So 
What native-born American children don't have, in my estimation, and it's shameful, is the realization of the wonder that is America, and that you still have to roll up your sleeves and get to work, damn it. Even if you've got the money, get up every day. Warren Buffett makes a living. He gets up every day and goes to work because it's the love of labor, not whether you have a job. I remember showing the first big check, millions of dollars, that I showed my mother. I did that. And she couldn't understand just how much it was. So she folded it up and put it down. She goes, wonderful, wonderful. Now what are you going to do? That's actually pretty profound. Because That's very profound. Isn't yeah, it? it's like been there, done that. Now, will you get up every day and go to work, or will you just sit back and do nothing? What I want to see is Dan Rather in one of these outfits. <laughs> I work hard. I'm a journalist. Come in here. Let's go out and see what the circus is like. We've talked about the changes uh, in entertainment and music. What about the changes in the culture? How has the culture of the country changed, or has it? The country has become polarized. The country has become liberals and conservatives and Fox and CNN and, you know, all those sort of notions that divide us. And if we're not too careful, it's the, the fall of the Roman Empire will come from within. I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I have very conservative points of views regarding fiscal issues. I'm against entitlement and very conservative regarding foreign policy. I don't want to wait around until cockroaches multiply. I want to go over there, stamp it out before it becomes a disease. Social issues, separation of church and state, gay rights, if you, if you love farm animals, I don't care. Live and let live, I'm all about that. So what am I? You know what I am? I belong to the American political party. It's called America. What party are you from? American. You've benefited greatly from living in this country, and you've said you've expressed a deep and abiding appreciation of that. I love America. I wish more Americans said that. When you were coming up, you came here eight and a half years old. Did you face any anti-Semitism coming up? Of course. Did you face any anti-Semitism when you were getting the band? Sure, and that's why I changed my name. I didn't want the Jewish part of Gene Simmons to get in the way of what I wanted to achieve, which is success. But Jews have been doing that since time immemorial, which is assimilation. I assimilated in America and proud of it. Make my name sound more American? You bet. Because my given name, which I had nothing to do with, by the way, it was given to me. My given name starts off with the sound of a cat throwing up a hairball. <sighs> That's even before you get to my first name. It doesn't work, Chaim. It doesn't work in America. Chaim, Chaim. They don't want to say that word. Okay, I'll make it easier for you. I don't have a problem in, so when I go to a funeral, I dress in the costume, that's appropriate. I don't want to go in a clown outfit in a funeral because I want to pay it respect. If I go to your house and it's a very conservative house, I'll tear my hair behind my back, you know, or whatever I need to do to respect. If America is giving me all the opportunities I could ever imagine 
that a native-born son and daughter would have, why would I insist on being arrogant and say, you've got to accept me for who I am? As far as I'm concerned, I want to go to you instead of expecting the mountain to come to Mohammed, if you will. Let me turn to some things which I think some people may disagree with you, and let's talk about it a little. I'm going to go down a list. This is not a list of favorite things you have said. It's okay. It said, immigrants should learn goddamned English, quote, unquote. I stand by every word I said. I am an immigrant. I'm a legal immigrant. And my journey has taught me dress British, think Yiddish. I can foist and I can force my culture, my religion, my lack of English skills on everybody else. I have the right to be whatever I want to be. And I want to speak fluent Zimbabwean here in America. And you can't tell me what to do. That's true. So how is that going to earn you a living? The more language skills you have, that's called English. The more people skills you have, the more you know about the culture that you land in. When in Rome, do as the Romans. I didn't, I didn't create those. I didn't invent any of those rules. You have a distinct added advantage if you can speak English well. And yes, even without an accent. And I'm talking about a guy who spoke with a very heavy accent. Ich kann auch sprechen Deutsch, but if I speak another language, I speak it without an accent. Tu doch besser nicht Madarul, und du kannst vielleicht Madarul sagen, well, that's Hungarian. Hashem shelichayim, nolati b'chaifa, that's fluent Hebrew, but it's the right sound of the language. Make the effort. It's your responsibility. If America is giving you all the advantages of its native-born sons and daughters, for God's sakes, make an effort and learn the culture and the language. You're already getting all the advantages. No, I don't want to do anything for it. I just want all the advantages. Next. This list, I'm not going to go on the rest of the afternoon with this list. Oh, I stand. <laughs> Listen, I've said some stupid things. Well, and, uh, well, would you put in that category that while talking about a hypothetical depressed child, considering commuting suicide, you said, quote, I'm the guy who says jump, unquote. Sorry that you said that. I did. It was a stupid moment, and uh, I apologized over and over again, and that's not what I meant. You can take anything out of context. I was reacting to the idea that there were a lot of people who wanted attention, who played the victim card over and over again, drug addicts, alcoholics, it's a disease. You know, anybody who points and says, I've got a hard life, you don't understand why I'm a drug addict, it, you know, it just got my, under my skin. My mother was in a concentration camp. Shut the fuck up. She doesn't complain about anything. She wakes up every day, makes no excuses about anything. She's alive. and. She revels in life. So when I hear people who are born in America and complain about things, I'm a victim, you have all the advantages, we had nothing. We had nothing, came to America with nothing, and were given all the access to anything, and it was the rest of So, you know, when, when, it, when images of my mother bring up, I say stupid things because I try to bitch slap all the complainers and the entitlement people. So it was very hurtful to people who do, in fact, suffer from a disease called depression. I recognize that. And I stand guilty as charged of making a wide sweeping statement. And that's my fault for not being specific. But I will tell you that whether it's a child crying just to get attention or whether it's a grown-up saying, I'm a victim, I'm sick and tired of it. It's like, shut up, 
pick yourself up by two britches, you're alive, you're in America, stop complaining. I'm going to ask you to rate yourself. Difficult thing to do. Oh, it's easy for me. As a bass player? Medium. Seven, seven out of ten. Songwriter? Six or seven. Husband? It's a two-pronged question. As a partner, before we got married, a two. As a husband, I, I hope I'm close to ten. We'll have to ask Shannon about that. That's precisely the point. As a father? Two-pronged. Before, five or six. Now, and you should ask the kids. I hope it's a ten. Well, that would give you an average eight. Not all that bad. That was quick. I want to get back to Kiss. You've had some great nights. You've had some great songs, some great albums. What is your favorite moment out of the Kiss experience? My favorite moment continues to be getting up on that stage, which as far as I'm concerned is holy ground. It's electric church. What we do is unequal. In fact, we introduce ourselves with, you wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest band in the world, KISS. It is a self-imposed mandate that even if you hate the band and the music and think it's silly, if you come to our show, you will walk out and say, that's the best show I've ever seen in my life. Because I come from a period when people used to strum acoustic guitars with their legs crossed and incense growing up and never looked at, you know, they look at the gum on the floor and charge you full price for that. The four guys that put the band together 40 years ago, basically the self-imposed mandate was, let's put together the band we never saw on stage. Let's kick him in the nuts. Let's give him something that I've never seen before. So all the rules went out the window. We didn't want to look like other bands. There's no political content. It's fluff. It's two hours of magic where you forget about the traffic jam, the argument you had with the girlfriend, where's this going, why do I have my mother's hips, like all that out the door. Little pregnant pause for our lady friends to have a little laugh. <laughs> why won't he call me, where's this going? <gasps> Just for two hours, magic time. Gene Simmons, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that wraps up another captivating episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation unite.